Section 5 of Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Club in Ruins. An antique ruin has its privileges. The longer the period of its crumbling, the more do the owls build their nests in it, the more do the excursionists munch in it their sandwiches. Thus, year by year, its fame increases till it looks back with contempt on the days when it was a mere upright waterproof. Local guide-books pander more and more slavishly to its pride. Leader-writers, in need of a pathetic metaphor, are more and more frequently supplied by it. If there be any sordid question of clearing it away to make room for something else, the public outcry is positively deafening. Not that we are still under the sway of that peculiar cult which beset us in the earlier part of the nineteenth century. A bad poet or painter can no longer reap the reward of genius merely by turning his attention to ruins under moonlight, nor does any one cause to be built in his garden a broken turret for the evocation of sensibility in himself and his guests. There used to be one such turret near the summit of Campton Hill, but that familiar imposture was raised a year or two ago, no one protesting. Fuit, the frantic, factitious sentimentalism for ruins. On the other hand, the sentiment for them is as strong as ever it was. Decrepit Carisbrook and its rivals annually tighten their hold on Britannia's heart. I do not grudge them their success, but the very fact that they are so successful inclines me to reserve my own personal sentiment, rather, for those unwept, unsung ruins which so often confront me, here and there, in the streets of this aggressive metropolis. The ruins made, not by time, but by the ruthless skill of labor, the ruins of houses not old enough to be sacrosanct nor new enough to keep pace with the demands of a gasping and plethoric community. These are the ruins that move me to tears. No owls flutter in them, no trippers lunch in them, in no guide-book or leading article will you find them mentioned. Their pathetic interiors gape to the sky and to the street, but nor gods nor men hold out a hand to save them. The patterns of bedroom wallpapers, chosen with what care, after how long discussion, only a few short years or months ago, stare out their obvious, piteous appeal to us for mercy. And their dumb agony is echoed dumbly by the places where doors have been, doors that lately were tapped at by respectful knuckles, or the places where staircases have been, staircases down whose banisters lately slid little children laughing. Exposed, humiliated, doomed, the home throws out a hundred pleas to us, and the pharisaic community passes by on the other side of the way in fear of a falling brick. Down come the walls of the home, as quickly as pickaxes can send them. Down they crumble, piecemeal, into the foundations, 
and are carted away. Soon other walls will be rising, red brick residential walls, more in harmony with the zeitgeist. None but I pays any heed to the ruins. I am their only friend. Me they attract so irresistibly that I haunt the door of the hoarding that encloses them, and am frequently mistaken for the foreman. A few summers ago I was watching, with more than usual emotion, the rasure of a great edifice at a corner of Hanover Square. There were two reasons why this rasure especially affected me. I had known the edifice so well by sight, ever since I was a small boy, and I had always admired it as a fine example of that kind of architecture which is the most suitable to London's atmosphere. Though I must have passed it thousands of times, I had never passed without an upward smile of approval, that gaunt and sombre façade, with its long straight windows, its well-spaced columns, its long straight coping against the London sky. My eyes deplored that these noble and familiar things must perish. For sake of what they had sheltered, my heart deplored that they must perish. The falling edifice had not been exactly a home. It had been even more than that. It had been a refuge from many homes. It had been a club. Certainly it had not been a particularly distinguished club. Its demolition could not have been stayed on the plea that Charles James Fox had squandered his substance in its guardroom or that Lord Melbourne had loved to doze on the benches in its hall. Nothing sublime had happened in it. No sublime person had belonged to it. Persons without the vaguest pretensions to sublimity had always, I believe, found quick and easy entrance into it. It had been a large, nondescript affair, but, to adapt Byron, a club's a club, though everyone's in it. The ceremony of election gives it a cachet which not even the smartest hotel has. And then there is the notepaper, and there are the newspapers, and the cigars at wholesale prices, and the not-to-be-tipped waiters, and other blessings for mankind. If the members of this club had but migrated to some other building, taking their effects and their constitution with them, the ruin would have been pathetic enough. But, alas, the outward wreck was a symbol, a result, of inner dissolution. Through the door of the hoarding, the two pillars of the front door told a sorry tale. Pasted on either of them was a dingy bill, bearing the sinister imprimatur of an auctioneer, and offering, in capitals of various sizes, bedroom suites, walnut and mahogany, turkey, Indian, and Wilton pile carpets, two full-sized billiard tables, a Remington typewriter, a double door, fireproof, and other objects not less useful and delightful. The club, then, had gone to smash. The members had been disbanded, driven out of this Eden by the fiery sword of the law, driven back to their homes. 
Sighing over the marcessibility of human happiness, I peered between the pillars into the excavated and chaotic hall. The porter's hatch was still there in the wall. There it was, wondering why no inquiries were made through it now, or, maybe, why it had not been sold into bondage with the double door and the rest of the fixtures, a melancholy relic of past glories. I crossed over to the other side of the road and passed my eye over the whole ruin. The roof, the ceilings, most of the inner walls, had already fallen. Little remained but the grim, familiar façade, a thin husk. I noted, that which I had never noted before, two iron grills in the masonry, miserable travesties of usefulness, ventilating the open air. Through the gaping windows against the wall of the next building, I saw in mid-air the greenish Lincrusta Walton of what I guessed to have been the billiard-room, the billiard-room that had boasted two full-sized tables. Above it ran a frieze of white and gold. It was interspersed with flat Corinthian columns. The gilding of the capitals was very fresh and glittered gaily under the summer sunbeams. And hardly a day of the next autumn and winter passed, but I was drawn back to the ruin by a kind of lugubrious magnetism. The strangest thing was that the ruin seemed to remain in practically the same state as when first I had come upon it. The façade stood still high. This might have been due to the proverbial laziness of British workmen, but I did not think it could be. The workmen were always plying their pickaxes, with apparent gusto and assiduity, along the top of the building. Bricks and plaster were always crashing down into the depths and sending up clouds of dust. I preferred to think the building renewed itself, by some magical process, every night. I preferred to think it was prepared thus to resist its aggressors, for so long a time that, in the end, there would be an intervention from other powers. Perhaps from this site no residential affair was destined to scrape the sky. Perhaps the saint to whom the club had dedicated itself would reappear at length, glorious equestrian, to slay the dragons who had infested and desecrated his premises. I wondered whether he would then restore the ruins, reinstating the club, and setting it for ever on a sound commercial basis, or would leave them just as they were, a fixed signal to sensibility. But when first I saw the poor façade being pickaxed, I did not give it more than a fortnight. I had no feeling but of hopeless awe and pity. The workmen on the coping seemed to me ministers of inexorable Olympus, executing an Olympian decree, and the building seemed to me a live victim, a scapegoat, suffering sullenly for sins it had not committed. To me it seemed to be flinching under every rhythmic blow of those well-wielded weapons, praying for the hour when sunset should bring its surcease from that daily ordeal, I caught myself nodding to it, a nod of sympathy, of hortation to endurance. 
Immediately I was ashamed of my lapse into anthropomorphism. I told myself that my pity ought to be kept for the real men who had been frequenters of the building, who were now waifs. I reviewed the gaping, glassless windows through which they had been wont to watch the human comedy. There they had stood, puffing their smoke and cracking their jests, and tearing women's reputations to shreds. Not that I, personally, have ever heard a woman's reputation torn to shreds in a club window. A constant reader of lady novelists, I have always been hoping for this excitement, but somehow it has never come my way. I am beginning to suspect that it never will, and am inclined to regard it as a figment. Such conversation as I have heard in clubs has been always of a very mild, perfunctory kind. A social club, even though it be a club with a definite social character, is a collection of heterogeneous creatures, and its aim is perfect harmony and good fellowship. Thus any definite expression of opinion by any member is regarded as dangerous. The ideal clubman is he who looks genial and says nothing at all. Most Englishmen find little difficulty in conforming with this ideal. They belong to a silent race. Social clubs flourish, therefore, in England. Intelligent foreigners, seeing them, recognize their charm and envy us them, and try to reproduce them at home. But the continent is too loquacious. On it social clubs quickly degenerate into bear gardens, and the basic ideal of good fellowship goes by the board. In Paris, Petersburg, Vienna, the only social clubs that prosper are those which are devoted to games of chance, those which induce silence by artificial means. Were I a foreign visitor, taking cursory glances, I should doubtless be delighted with the clubs of London. Had I the honour to be an Englishman, I should doubtless love them. But being a foreign resident, I am somewhat oppressed by them. I crave in them a little freedom of speech, even though such freedom were their ruin. I long for their silence to be broken here and there, even though such breakage broke them with it. It is not enough for me to hear a hushed exchange of mild jokes about the weather, or of comparisons between what the Times says and what the Standard says. I pine for a little vivacity, a little boldness, a little variety, a few gestures. A London club, as it is conducted, seems to me very like a catacomb. It is tolerable so long as you do not actually belong to it. But when you do belong to it, when you have outlived the fleeting gratification at having been elected, when you... But I ought not to have fallen into the second-person plural. You, readers, are free-born Englishmen, these clubs come natural to you. You love them. To them you slip eagerly from your homes. As for me, poor alien, had I been a member of the club whose demolition has been my theme, I should have grieved for it not one whit the more bitterly. Indeed, 
my tears would have been a trifle less salt. It was my detachment that enabled me to be so prodigal of pity. THE POOR WAIFS Long did I stand, in the sunshine of that day when first I saw the ruin, wondering and distressed, ruthful, indignant that such things should be. I forgot on what errand I had come out. I recalled it. Once or twice I walked away, bent on its fulfilment. But I could not proceed further than a few yards. I halted, looked over my shoulder, was drawn back to the spot, drawn by the crude, insistent anthem of the pickaxes. The sun slanted toward Notting Hill. Still I loitered, spellbound. I was aware of someone at my side, someone asking me a question. "'I beg your pardon,' I said. The stranger was a tall man, bronzed and bearded. He repeated his question. In answer, I pointed silently to the ruin. "'That!' he gasped. He stared vacantly. I saw that his face had become pale under its sunburn. He looked from the ruin to me. "'You're not joking with me?' he said thickly. I assured him that I was not. I assured him that this was indeed the club to which he had asked to be directed. "'But,' he stammered, "'but, but—' "'You were a member?' I suggested. "'I am a member,' he cried. "'And what's more, I'm going to write to the committee.' I suggested that there was one fatal objection to such a course. I spoke to him calmly, soothed him with words of reason, elicited from him, little by little, his sad story. It appeared that he had been a member of the club for ten years, but had never, except once, as a guest, been inside it. He had been elected on the very day on which, by compulsion of his father, he set sail for Australia. He was a mere boy at the time. Bitterly he hated leaving old England, nor did he ever find the life of a squatter congenial. The one thing which enabled him to endure those ten years of unpleasant exile was the knowledge that he was a member of a London club. Year by year, it was a keen pleasure to him to send his annual subscription. It kept him in touch with civilization, in touch with home. He loved to know that when, at length, he found himself once again in the city of his birth, he would have a firm foothold on sociability. The friends of his youth might die or might forget him, but, as a member of a club, he would find substitutes for them in less than no time herding bullocks all day long on the arid plains of central Australia, he used to keep up his spirits by thinking of that first whisky and soda, which he would order from a respectful waiter as he entered his club. All night long, wrapped in his blanket beneath the stars, he used to dream of that drink to come, that first symbol of an unlost grip on civilization. He had arrived in London this very afternoon, depositing his luggage at an hotel, 
he had come straight to his club. And now... He filled up his aposiopesis with an uncouth gesture, signifying, I may as well get back to Australia. I was on the point of offering to take him to my own club and give him his first whiskey and soda therein, but I refrained. The sight of an extant club might have maddened the man. It certainly was very hard for him to have belonged to a club for ten years, to have loved it so passionately from such a distance, and then to find himself destined never to cross its threshold. Why, after all, should he not cross its threshold? I asked him if he would like to. What, he growled, would be the good? I appealed, not in vain, to the imaginative side of his nature. I went to the door of the hoarding and explained matters to the foreman, and presently, nodding to me solemnly, he passed with the foreman through the gap between the doorposts. I saw him crossing the excavated hall, crossing it along a plank, slowly and cautiously. His attitude was very like Blondin's, but it had a certain tragic dignity which Blondin's lacked. And that was the last I saw of him. I hailed a cab and drove away. What became of the poor fellow I do not know. Often, as I returned to the ruin, and long as I loitered by it, him I never saw again. Perhaps he really did go straight back to Australia. Or, perhaps, he induced the workmen to bury him alive in the foundations. His fate, whatever it was, haunts me. End of section 5